Welcome to Schools on the Front Lines, a podcast brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. This special podcast series has focused on the multiple challenges faced by school leaders during the pandemic. In today's episode, we're talking with our state's elected superintendent of public instruction, Tony Thurman, who has been on the front lines of this pandemic since day one. Elected statewide in 2018, Tony has in the past served as a social worker, a city council member, a school board member, and a state legislator. He's also a public school parent. Welcome, Tony. Thank you. I recall that the two of us had a leisurely lunch in Los Angeles back in December of 2019. You were taking stock of your first year as state superintendent, asking a wide variety of people how you could improve the California Department of Education to better serve schools and districts as the new year of 2020 approached. How has your life and the operation of the department changed in 2020? What a world of change uh, since that lunch. I wish we could hit rewind and go back to that lunch. You know, it was a time when we could dream about how we structure the organization to better serve the needs of students. I don't think either of us could have imagined then that we would be dealing with a pandemic, that we would be moving into really a kind of survival mode. And how do we help students and educators and their families be safe and still get a quality education, deal with the impacts of race? And so life has changed in many ways. We've shifted. Our initial plans were all these things we were going to do to you know, diversify the teacher workforce and provide social emotional supports to students. We then shifted into our pandemic response. But interestingly enough, I feel like we're coming back to where we started. We started with the conversation about equity. We started with the conversation about closing the opportunity gap. And I think even in the pandemic, even though our economy has been decimated and the budgets aren't there to support some of the programs we dreamed about, the needs have been exacerbated. And so now I'm of the mindset that we have to continue the course in the conversation about equity and closing gaps, closing the digital divide. And so I think all of our education field is probably experiencing a little fatigue and hoping that 2021 is a different kind of year. But I'm hopeful, and we're going to keep pushing on and trying to support our California students. How has the adversity that you faced and overcame in your own personal life helped you during this extraordinary year of adversity? Well, you know, when I look back on my own life, you know, losing my mom to cancer when I was six and my dad not being in my life and trying to overcome poverty and the free lunch program and food stamps and you know, education was always the constant. And um, I had great teachers and they always pushed me. And they made me believe that education would make my life better. And as an adult, I, I agree that they were right. And those messages have stayed with me in how we work with students now. They also gave me a sense that hope was possible. And so that even when things were tough, when you have hope, you can keep moving forward. And so I still have hope. The pandemic makes things quite difficult. I think this is the toughest challenge that most of us will experience in our lifetime. But I still have hope that we can find a way to move safely forward, ensuring our kids get an education. I have hope when I see people saying that we need racial justice and change now with urgency. I have hope uh, that positive change can come. 
And so I, I really believe that those experiences have served me over the course of my career. They've made me gravitate to wanting to help other young people who've been through similar types of challenge and who've, who, quite frankly, whose experiences have been much tougher than mine. Uh, but they've given me a sense of hope and belief that we can make things better. And we have to make things better for all of our students. You've been a forceful advocate for closing the digital divide, getting devices to students in all parts of our state. How is that campaign going, and who have been your main partners in that effort? This has been a real eye-opener, Carl. I, I mean, I think I've always known that, you know, we had a digital divide. I think the pandemic has pulled back the veil to show embarrassingly how poorly we've done as a system to ensure that all of our students have access to equity as it relates to computing devices and high-speed internet. So at first, you know, I started this task force on closing the digital divide simply to say, how do we get more computing devices and hotspots to students? But now I think the mantra has to be, how do we close the digital divide in our near future? You know, if we've got, some have estimated a million students without access to high-speed internet, we can't expect students to do well during the pandemic in, in those circumstances. And even if we weren't in the pandemic, how do we get our students to be ready for the jobs of tomorrow in computer science and technology and research and healthcare and all these great fields if they don't have access to the most basic tools? And so uh, since April, we've been getting commitments from internet service providers to provide low cost internet without families jumping through hoops. And they've done it. We've used you know, leverage of having legislators on the task force to say to the internet companies, we need you to say that we're not going to ask you for your social security number. We're not going to ask you about your financial history, but we will provide you internet as low as $10 a month. And they've done it. We've worked with tons of companies and donors who've helped us to secure hundreds of thousands of computing devices and hotspots um, to our kids. Uh, But it's still not enough. We've got to do so much more. Uh, We have you know, students in rural communities who have access to no internet because they don't have the infrastructure to get it. And so, uh, you know, we're setting our, our goal to work with the legislature, to work with the business community, to work with the tech companies, to create some new solutions for how we get the infrastructure in rural communities for the internet, how we get high speed internet in the hands of all of our students. The task force is going to be very busy between now and the next legislative session. And we hope to bring a lot of innovation, even an innovation competition where we ask, uh, you know, researchers and R&D programs and entrepreneurs to come up with the next great solution for how to provide high speed Internet in California. Tony, in your view, how should success of the digital divide campaign be measured? Well, I don't think we can call it a success until every student is equipped with the tools that they need, until every student has access to high-speed internet. I I just think that there's no negotiating there. And I know that's a high standard to set, but that's the measure by which I like to be judged when we talk about closing the digital divide. You know, as I've been saying, internet connectivity should flow like electricity, and there's no reason for any student in California or anywhere in this nation to be without access to high-speed internet. And so I, I think that's the measure by which we will be judged. Did we close the digital divide 
Did we find a way to create uh, students to have access to computing devices, high-speed internet, the proper training on how to use it, the proper digital literacy? You know, uh, did we support educators with professional development? I think we need the whole arrangement to say that we've reached success. We're, we're marching towards progress, but we're, we're sort of behind the eight ball in terms of timing, given that right now, distance learning is still the primary way that the majority of students in this country are getting their education, that so many are without the tools that they need, the basic tools. I think we're far away from success, but we're, we're making good progress and we're not going to stop until we get there. Tony, what are your other priorities with regard to the six million plus students in California schools? You know, it's always been about equity from the start. And I'd like to see a time when we can say that every student is afforded a high quality education, regardless of where he or she lives, regardless of their circumstances. I don't think that your zip code should dictate the educational experience that you get, whether or not you're prepared to go off to college, whether or not you end up in a criminal justice system. And so equity always has been at the forefront of my agenda. And I think we have to continue to make that case. Uh, I'd like to see us drill down more in our ability to improve literacy rates for all of our students, especially our youngest students. I'd like to see us provide more supports for our students. Right now during the pandemic, I I can't imagine anything less than a full thread of social, emotional learning supports and counselors for students who experience a high rate of depression. But even when we're coming out of the pandemic, I think that we've always been without the number of counselors and supports that our students need. Healthcare access in their school, mental health supports in school, and just wraparound supports to address the kind of social economic challenges that I think impede students learning. I'm a believer that all students, regardless of their background, can be successful. I believe that social economic challenges like poverty, homelessness, students in foster care, things of this nature have impeded our student success. And so for me, this all boils down to making equity a top priority and continuing to make that the focus of our work. You've also talked openly and authentically about the impact of George Floyd's murder on you as a black man. What would you like to share with our listeners about that tragedy and how you're using it to provide safer schools and communities for all of our students? Carl, to be honest, I just still can't get my mind around it. I, you know, my heart breaks uh, for the families who've lost loved ones to police brutality, people who could still be alive today, but for a, you know, a transit stop or someone's taillight is out or Um, Even someone is accused of having counterfeit money. These things should not result in the loss of someone's life. And seeing, literally seeing black men and black women and people of color choked to death and shot and killed in their own home, these things are simply just devastating. And as a parent, I could not answer to my kids how these things could happen. I, I didn't know how to answer those questions that they had, and I didn't know if I could answer the question about keeping them safe, could I keep them safe uh, if something similar might befall us? And so what I've come to is that we have an opportunity to use education to counter hate. And since the killing of George Floyd, we've announced a new initiative to address implicit bias in our schools by providing implicit bias training. And I'm grateful that we received some foundation grants to do that. We've also intensified the effort to provide a round of grants to school districts to enable them to 
provide professional development to teachers to engage in anti-hate, anti-bias, anti-racism programs. And we put out an announcement of a small grant, and we heard from over 400 school districts that said they're interested in receiving the professional development. So we know that the need is there. We know that the opportunity is there. From these tragedies, I'm hopeful that we have a broader conversation of honesty about the impacts that race and racism and bias and prejudice have played in our education system and in our country. It's not just in education. Bias is in every sector. But because my lane is education, I'm suggesting and submitting that we use education to counter hate. And uh, we'll keep pushing and looking to raise more funds to provide more professional development for our educators. We believe that this is a way to also offset the kinds of disparate impacts around who gets suspended. You know, our youngest children, our youngest children of color get suspended and expelled, setting them up on a path that could push them into the criminal justice system. And so I, I think that this is a defining moment for California, uh, for our nation, for society to uh, openly and honestly talk about the impacts of race and the impacts that it has had on all of our sectors. And, and so we're leaning in in the education sector. A couple of weeks ago, the leadership of the state's school psychologists and school counselors were on this podcast, and they both praised your effort in convening them, along with social workers, to focus on the mental health needs of students, their families, and school staffs. What do you hope to accomplish with this important initiative, and who at the CDE, the California Department of Education, will be heading up this work? Well, it's not lost on me, Carl, that you're a former school psychologist, and I appreciated talking with you about the things that we need to provide supports to our students. And uh, what we're working on is creating a kind of statewide network where anybody who needs help right now has a phone number that they can call toll-free, just get the help that they need, get referred to counseling and supports, mental health supports uh, in their community, even if it's short term. You know, the groups that you mentioned have been important because we've needed to pull together our existing counseling groups, school counselors, psychologists, social workers, those with the MFT, Masters in Family Therapy, to pull them together to help create a system for filling gaps. You know, there are gaps in the system that have been exacerbated by the pandemic, uh, but we know that depression and, and suicide rates are increasing during the pandemic. And so this counseling coalition helps us to do this work. We've been able to add some new staff during this time through some grants, and we have a new deputy superintendent for equity who happens to be trained as a school psychologist, uh, Dr. Daniel Lee, who I've asked to help us pull together this counseling coalition and to create a plan for moving forward closing gaps for those who've been impacted and who need additional supports. I'm talking with Tony Thurman, California's Superintendent of Public Instruction. Tony, when you look at your crystal ball, what does 2021 look like for our schools? Will most of them be successfully reopened for in-person instruction? I guess the other thing is, as school people, have we spent too much time focused solely on the health risk from the virus while ignoring the damage that can come to children from isolation, learning loss, lack of socialization, lack of access to mandated child abuse reporters? So where do you find the right balance between reopening in person and all of these other issues? I wish I could 
project what 2021 is going to look like. I wish we could fast forward and be in 2021 and put 2020 behind us. What a year this has been. Uh, you know, my guess is that we'll still see some combination of schools and distance learning and some that will be open for instruction in person. That's the trend that we're seeing where more schools in California are moving towards opening, many of them having set a, a timeline for early 2021 to be in person. But the reality is, is we just don't know. We don't know if there'll be another strand of the coronavirus. We don't know what its impacts will be. We certainly cannot control it, but we can control what we do. And I suspect that we'll see some balance of in-person instruction and some level of distance learning. Uh, I think in many ways, distance learning is going to be with us for many years to come, even if we find ourselves with the vaccine and the ability to safely return to in-person instruction. You know, I think that many schools have found a way to make distance learning work over the years, and we've got to learn from them. I do think that it is true that social isolation has created very difficult conditions for our students. But at the end of the day, I don't think there's anything more important than being safe from the impacts of the coronavirus with more than 200,000 people who've lost their lives. I think our challenge, if we find ourselves still in distance learning in 2021, is to figure out how do we offset the impacts of social isolation? How do we find ways to offset not having the ability for teachers who are mandated reporters to offset the potential for child abuse? I, I don't think we should let the social isolation impacts force us to just run into a danger that we don't understand, but I do think that it just makes us take the time to think through, okay, if all we have to connect students to their teacher is the computer and the internet, how do we find a way to make sure that we can deal with any increase in child abuse? How do we make sure we deal with you know, social isolation? But I think we have to put safety first and foremost as our guide and move forward with those as our, as our guiding principles. This episode of the podcast will be published less than a week before the November election that here in California features a number of statewide ballot propositions. Without your telling our listeners how to vote, what are those propositions that will provide greater resources and access for students in our K-12 schools and institutions of higher education? Well, I'd like to mention Prop 15 as a start, which could generate up to $11 billion for K-12 education, higher education, and for cities and counties that desperately need the revenue. When I campaigned for this job, I always said that my top priority would be raising more money for California schools. We've been 39th in the nation of per pupil spending for a long time, and I think that we can do better, and we must do better. And so I think this is an important measure that can generate that kind of revenue. You know, it's not lost on me at the time that we're dealing with such examples of racial injustice and strife that there's a measure like Prop 16 on the ballot that would repeal Prop 209, which banned affirmative action in the state of California. By the way, just a handful of states have such a ban on affirmative action. I think it is a great time for us to look to other states and the success that they've had by not having such a ban uh, in the state. You know, 20 years ago, I, I, I worked at UC Berkeley in the housing program. And at that time, African-American students represented 5% of the student body. That's down now to something like 1%. Have they really created a just society? Have they really created access and opportunity for Californians in higher education and for women 
in the business community and women of color, we still see such a huge gap in what women earn compared to men in similar jobs. And when you look at women of color, the gap is even greater. And so obviously I'm not gonna tell the voters how to vote, but I think these are very important measures that people should be aware of what's on the ballot. No matter what, Carl, I just wanna encourage uh, everyone who hears the podcast to vote. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. Finally, Tony, when future historians look back at your time as state superintendent here in California, what would you want them to say about your legacy in this important role? Well, I hope that when it's all said and done that we can point to having closed the digital divide once and for all. And I think if everyone has access to the tools to learn, I think it's a great step in the right direction to ensuring that everyone has access to an equitable education and a chance to have a great quality education. Our needs may not all be the same, but equity says that we should all have access to a great education to then move on to have a great life. I'm hoping that we'll see higher literacy rates because that's such a gateway skill that helps our students prepare for a great future. And I'm hopeful that they'll say that our education system found ways to give more students access to computer science so that they could be ready for the jobs of tomorrow that we did a better job of giving every student a chance to learn a second language uh, so they can be citizens of the world and that we helped all of our students to become critical thinkers. But that if nothing else, that we got past just measuring test scores, but that we came up with great ways to measure learning and how to engage students in being excited about learning. Um, you know, I loved learning and I understood that learning was a pathway for me to have a better life. I, I would hope that the legacy uh, that I can leave is one where we can show that we created equitable learning for all of our students and put them on a pathway for success. Tony, thank you so much for spending time with us today and good luck to you and in turn the six million students in California's public schools. Thank you. Thank you, Carl. Let's continue to do more together for our students. That was Tony Thurman, California's Superintendent of Public Instruction. This has been Schools on the Front Lines, brought to you by EdSource and the Ball Frost Group. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our opening theme is by Utah. Please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Carl Cohn. <laughs>